Good morning, church. I have the privilege today to read some of our scripture, and we're going to be in Isaiah 59. If you want to grab a pew Bible, you may. It's page 600 and 618. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. We're going to drop down to verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Now down to verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nathaniel. I love how you said, then his own arm. Then, then God rolled up his sleeves and did something. Last Sunday was Mother's Day, and a great, beautiful day. I received a video message in a thread from Colby, my oldest son, to his mom. And like halfway through it, I'm just gushing, tears, standing in my bedroom Sunday morning before church. And, and then, of course, what, what am I? You have to video message your mom now. Like you can't love your mom and not video message her now that Colby has done this. So I'm like on the video message, my mom's like, oh, you so much. You're amazing, you know. Uh, Mother's Day is a great day. So all that's going on, and then after church at lunch, our kids 
say, okay, they're doing the math. There's a Mother's Day, and there's a Father's Day coming. There should be a Kids' Day, <laughs> right? To which I replied on behalf of every parent in the universe, every day of your life is Kids' Day in this house, right? Isn't that what I said? Of course that's what I said. Man, you have to be a parent to even care, like make sense of that. But then I got to thinking, okay, what if, like if we were gonna have a boys' day or a girls' day, today would be boys' day in church. Here's why. So I'm connecting primarily with the boys, although I know it's not 100% the case. Here's why I think today could be boys' day in the church. We had a bunch of little boys in the first service, but I still have Joshua and Timothy here, uh, and I saw, do I have any other, do I have other little boys here today? I'm just looking for, so we got some little boys in here anyway, but I, because today we're talking about snakes and spiders. And I know that some girls like snakes and spiders, but not all girls. In fact, the girls that I live with in my house have a visceral reaction to snakes and spiders. Can't stand them. Don't like anything about, don't even like the thought of me bringing out from the text in verse five that there are snakes and spiders in the Bible. It's gonna creep them out a little bit. So they are going to teach us something about who we are, snakes and spiders. And this happens over and over again in the Bible. By the way, if you're still kind of discovering the scriptures and, and the cash value of knowing and understanding scripture, God consistently teaches us from the natural order. He says, look at the way I've made the world and I'll teach you something. I'll teach you good things about yourself and I'll teach you bad things about yourself. And today he teaches us bad things he teaches us some bad things about ourselves through the creepy crawlers who creep you out when you just think about it. Uh, now, before we get into that, let me give you what the next three weeks looks like just to give you a sense of where we're going. You're, we're in Isaiah. We're finishing up Isaiah. If this is your first Sunday with us, we're coming to the end of Isaiah. We're doing chapter 59 today, 60 next week, and then 65 and 66 as the final installment. So today we want to think about how God redeems people. Next week, God redeems a city, Zion. And then finally, God redeems the whole world. And it's all coming out of the work of Christ, our Redeemer. So that's where we're moving. That's the direction we're going. Today, we want to think about how Christ redeems people from Isaiah 59. And we're going to look at three things. Our problem, our confession, if we're willing to make it, and our Redeemer, if we're willing to receive Him. Let's think about our problem, verses 1 through 8. The first part of this chapter, 59, verses 1 through 8, is in God's voice. God is speaking, and He speaks in verses 1 through 8 a formal accusation against His people. He speaks a formal accusation through Isaiah about his own people. Notice verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. His hand is not too short that it cannot save, or his ear too dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that you, this is another way of saying, are not in right relationship with God. It's not as if God cannot hear. Something else is at work. God's not the problem, Isaiah says. Your iniquities, you and your sins have hidden his face from you. You and I, we don't like this idea. We don't, we generally do not like, we resist the idea that we might be the problem, really at every level of our life, whether it's at a traffic light or a grocery store or a more formal conversation or unmet expectations or whatever the conflict is, we, we just don't automatically want to default to somehow the problem might be here, right? We want the problem to be somewhere else. And so this resistance is very common. You should not feel uh, alone in that. It's true. It's real. And it is, um, it is something God wants us to see from the beginning of this chapter. Our problem in the human condition is us, not God. I'm speaking big picture. Now, verses 3 and 4 start to build out the case God makes against his own people. His people that he's created for his glory. And here's what he says. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. And your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. He, he's describing something. I, we don't think he's talking about just metaphor. This is not just a metaphor as if you had done something wrong. Like this was happening. This was a problem in ancient Israel. Even among the post-exilic people, there's clearly something's going on here where they have, there's murder in their society. Real injustice. Hands are defiled with blood, fingers with iniquity, lips speaking lies, tongues uttering wickedness. In fact, and he kind of builds this out further into the, you can see he's talking about the network of the way the culture and the society of God's people is working. He says, no one enters a lawsuit, verse four, justly. No one goes to law honestly. It's so pervasive, the iniquity of the people is so pervasive that people are, you know, you would think it was just today, but it's not just today. In fact, a friend of mine is in the middle of a lawsuit right now, and this person is being treated unjustly. At least it very clearly appears that way to most people in the case, that this person is being accused unjustly, blatantly, openly, unjustly accused. This isn't just ancient problem. This is like today. In fact, in another situation, these are two unrelated situations, a friend of mine, a different friend of mine, said um, when he found out about something, um, and it kind of shocked me when he said it, he said, you know, you might have a lawsuit here. You might have a lawsuit here. You should consider that. I'm like, what? Injustice is happening all over the place. It's not just ancient Israel's problem. It's a problem today in our society. And it's because the human condition is so 
Right, well, let's see what Isaiah says. Why is this? In fact, the metaphor, let's not reinvent the wheel here. Verse four, second half of verse four, here's the problem. The heart of man is so, uh, is so prolific, pro- prolific and, and wants to propagate injustice. It says, conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Like we, as a as a as a condition, humanity is constantly conceiving and pregnant with conceiving mischief and iniquity and sin, so much so, and here are the snakes and spiders, that they hatch snakes' eggs. This is a pretty pretty vivid metaphor. The human heart, the condition of God's people, which is the condition of humanity, by the way, I'm gonna come back to that in a second, is to, is to hatch over and over again. Hatch mischief, hatch iniquity, hatch sin. They hatch spider's eggs. They weave the spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs dies. You, you, you might be thinking, wait, who would eat a spider? Well, we eat eggs, right? We eat eggs all the time, so. Whoever would, whoever would eat a spider's, or rather a snake rather, whoever would eat a snake's eggs dies. He's trying, to, he's trying to make a point. And from one that is crushed, from an egg that is crushed, a viper is hatched. This is like really rich metaphor. And the webs are really interesting. They weave spiders' webs. Isaiah is describing, God is formally describing his own people who were created for his glory as crafty and as sticky as spiders. Like a spider's web is sticky. Not the spider, but the spider's web is sticky, right? And the purpose of a spider's web to be sticky and glistening and beautiful and attractive is that the prey comes in, hits the spider's web, and it's stuck. It's, it's done. Now the spider gets to work and has his meal. Think about what this is saying about the human condition. That we are constantly in our hearts weaving, weaving a web that is sticky and tricky and deceptive and, and these webs, verse six, do not serve as clothing. We can't wear them. They, th- we weave a different kind of web. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the ways in which your own heart, the ways in which your own heart, without even realizing it, you're like just weaving this web um, of iniquity. And verse seven then says, and it shifts the metaphor, their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. There's a mad rush toward evil. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. There's a, there's, their thoughts give birth to thoughts. It's kind of multi, it's this multiplying image again from the conceiving and from the giving birth. Uh, it's the thoughts multiplying thoughts of iniquity and, and, and the way of peace they do not know and there's no justice and their roads are crooked. And like This is an incredibly indicting accusation from God on behalf of, of people. Now you might be saying to yourself, look, this is, if this is what Christianity is all about, this, I, this is not what I think Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about this. Christianity is about love. Uh, hold on for one second. If you undermine or downplay the problem as God sees it, be careful 
because you'll also, at the same time, undermine the powerful, redeeming, saving grace of Christ who comes to rescue people who cannot get themselves out of this. So, you might be saying to yourself, this is God speaking to Judah, his rebellious people, but he's not addressing all of humanity. We're not that bad. We're not as bad as rebellious Judah. Well, actually, we are. And it's my job as a pastor to help you see that as clearly as you can without you hating me. Because the gospel isn't beautiful. It isn't good news. It isn't powerfully redemptive if you've just got a little stain on your elbow. What Isaiah is talking about is a deep stain in the heart. And I understand God to be speaking to me and you out of this passage because these things were written for our instruction, the Apostle Paul says, of the whole Old Testament. And because Israel, over and over again in the Bible, is a, a, a testimony to the human condition. Israel represents us over and over again throughout the story of redemption. All of humanity. Israel represents all of humanity. And third, because the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, in his magisterial account of why everyone in the world needs Jesus to save them, quotes Isaiah. No, he doesn't just quote Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 59. Verse 7, right at the heart of his gospel presentation in Romans 3, he quotes this very passage, and he says, because of this, every, and this is his argument in Romans 3, therefore, everybody stands before God without, do you remember this? Without excuse. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And guess where he's getting his thoughts? He's getting them from Isaiah 59. So I take Isaiah 59 and the problem to not just be Israel and their problem, but my problem. Like this describes my heart apart from Christ. This describes your heart. This describes our heart and the human condition apart from Christ, apart from God's grace and mercy. Now, here's the hardest part. Would you be willing to agree with Isaiah about who you are? Point number two. Our confession. The next section of Isaiah 59 is so important. We need to confess and agree with God about what is true of us as hard as it is, as hard as it, as hard as it is to say, I, this is my condition, this, I live in this, I need, I need somebody to get me out of it, as hard as it is to say it, this is our only hope, to confess our need for Christ. Verse 9, therefore, if you're studying with me along and making notes and want to come back to Isaiah at some point, circle therefore. Therefore marks the beginning of the section. It marks a change. It marks a change in voice. It marks a change in who's speaking. Therefore, justice is far from us. So the movement of the passage here is, is God's people I'm sorry, the movement of the passage is God 
through Isaiah speaking about his people, verses 1 through 8, then Isaiah, on behalf of the remnant, on behalf of himself and the faithful remnant, he voices a confession. Therefore, justice is far from us. This must be the voice of the remnant, right? Since God has reduced, throughout the book of Isaiah, God has now reduced his people to the faithful remnant who have returned to him, who have said, we can no longer trust in ourselves. We're tired of being wise in our own eyes. Okay, we've come to the end of ourselves. We now confess. And by the way, that's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about coming to the end of yourself and confessing with Isaiah and with the people of God. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness doesn't overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as if it were twilight or dark. We live among those who look like they have full life, but we are like walking dead men, verse 10. This is a confession of our blindness. I... um, I want to illustrate the groping here for a second because, because groping is this like, all right, so I, are you with me? I've got my eyes closed. Can somebody verify this? Somebody on near the front, can you verify that I've got my eyes closed? Okay, I'm not peeking, I'm not cheating. Can somebody, I can't see you, so I need some, my eyes are closed? Okay, I, I'm losing my sense of where I am around the pulpit. Um, I'm sort of groping here. If I go this way, is this a good way to go? Okay, this way? All right, I'm off the carpet. That's good, there's a marker here because I think I got a couple more feet to go this way. Can I keep going here? How we doing? (laughs) My eyes are really closed. People in the balcony are enjoying this way too much. Okay, I'm cheating now, I'm open my eyes. I had plenty of room. So, like, here's what Isaiah, here's what he's saying. He's saying you're walking around, you're walking around blind, and and this is what the confession says. The confession says, okay, God, I realize that walking through life by myself is like groping in the darkness. I don't know where I am. That's what Isaiah is voicing for us. When you come to the place of voicing with God, agreeing with God, agreeing with Isaiah, agreeing with Christ, that you need him, that you need to, him to open your eyes, for him to give you sight, for him to give you wisdom, for him to give you, he says in verse 11, we growl like bears. What's he talking about? We growl like bears, we moan like like birds, like doves. We hope for justice, like a growling bear is longing for something that he doesn't have. He's troubled. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Look at this confession. We realize we've multiplied our sins before you and they testify against us. And we know our iniquities. We know we have denied you, Lord. Verse 13. Turning away from following God. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. 
Now what strikes me about Isaiah here is that he so closely identifies with his people. And he's done this throughout the book. So whether he's guilty of a particular sin or not, he does not move away from them. He does not shift responsibility, but he feels for his people and the trouble they have caused themselves. He's deeply broken. In fact, some describe this section as a lament. This is a lament. He, he, lament means he's feeling solidarity with his people. Even if he's not immediately culpable for that particular sin, he feels a brokenness. John Oswald, in his commentary, says, by you know, making application out of this chapter, he says, this might be the great lesson of the book of Jonah. As you think about how the prophets operate. This might be the great lesson of the book of Jonah. Jonah felt no solidarity at all with the hated Assyrians. Like, he looked forward with grim satisfaction, he says, to their destruction. We don't look forward to anybody's destruction with grim satisfaction. Jonah had not yet discovered what Isaiah embodies right here. Isaiah embodies Christ right here. He, he embodies the solidarity that God feels with his own people who are suffering. So if you want to be more like God, if you want to be more like Isaiah, be careful not to say things like this. And, I, and I've heard th this from more than one place in the last year and a half or so, different contexts. Be careful that you don't say things like this. I'm not responsible for someone else's sin. I can't repent for someone else. Be careful with that because it's only half true. I can't repent for someone else, that is true. I can't repent for someone else and receive forgiveness for someone else. I can't repent for you and you can't repent for me and receive God's grace for your personal saving, you know, for you. But that does not mean that I am not somehow responsible in this matter. It doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility and a, a responsibility either at the personal level or at the family level or at the societal level to feel the weight and the brokenness of this sin and to feel it in different ways. And I know that everything is complicated the deeper the problem gets. But I am so glad that Jesus did not say that's their, that's their problem. I'm not responsible for their sin. That's somebody else's problem. I understand that Jesus is the Son of God and none of us could ever and you should never even conceive of atoning for someone else's sin. There's one person, there's only one man who can atone for anybody else's sin, Jesus. And yet we follow Christ in the solidarity that he has for humanity. We follow him into that. And though we can't repent for someone else, we can be broken, we can have compassion. We can stand like Isaiah and say, man, God, we have, 
we have done wrong. We as a people, we can lament the brokenness of this situation. We can lament and look to our Redeemer and then we can voice that only one man can solve this problem. And that's where we go. So here's the third point. So that's our, our problem, our confession. Here's the third point, our Redeemer. Pick up in verse 15 and look at this. This is, this is amazing. The Lord saw it. He saw the lack of justice. He saw everything that was wrong. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he considered that there was no one to intervene. Do you see that? He saw that there was no man. There was no person, no single person, man or woman, no, no single person who embodied justice, not in the entire nation. No priest, no warrior king, not even Isaiah himself was righteous enough to intervene. No one had the power to wage war against the enemy that Israel still needs to conquer. And I think the enemy that Israel still needs to conquer in this passage is not Babylon and it's not Persia. It's probably, it makes the most sense that the enemy Israel still needs to conquer is the very monster of sin that they cannot get away from. The true enemy that God has come to make war against is the evil monster of sin, of iniquity, of corruption. But there's no warrior strong enough, no priest holy enough, no king dignified enough, he saw that there was no man and considered that there was no one to intervene. So then his own arm, so then God rolls up his sleeves and says, this is something I must do for my people that they cannot do for themselves. And then look at this beautiful, and you know the Apostle Paul's gonna reach back here in Ephesians 6 and, and play off of the armor of God. Uh, and we'll talk about that another time, but here's the, this is where it starts in Isaiah 59. And, and so God puts on righteousness as, a, as chest protection. And he puts on a helmet of salvation on his head. So righteousness for chest protection, a helmet of salvation. And then he starts layering himself up. Look at this. This is amazing. He starts layering himself up in this beautiful image with vengeance. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be cool out. You need to layer up. And God's about to go to war against evil and sin and guess what he layers up with vengeance perfectly righteous indignation and then his final jacket the next verse says he puts on a coat and the coat that he puts on check this out the coat that he puts on is zeal which is translated sort of I'm going to give it to you from the urban dictionary energy to make right. Like if there's anything you learn about God this morning and his love for justice, just know this. He puts on a coat to go do battle for justice and all of his divine energy is concentrated on getting things right. Now how's he gonna work this out? Verse 20 says he's gonna do it through a man because he's been looking and there's no man, there's no one, there's no person who could do this except there is one. And the whole book of Isaiah has been hinting along the way about the suffering servant, about the one 
whose shoulders, on whose shoulders rests a government that will have no end and it'll be righteous and perfect and glorious and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Prince of Peace and Everlasting Ruler and Father and, and this same figure that Isaiah has been talking about is the, is the Redeemer, he's the Christ. God rolls up his sleeves in Christ to do battle against all things that are wrong and evil and iniquitous. One man, a redeemer, will come to Zion, verse 20. The redeemer will come to Zion. That's how he's going to do it. But he can't redeem everyone. I mean, he could, but he can't. Look at verse 20. A redeemer will come to those who, you see what it says? Page six, what, 618 in the Pew Bible, 681, 618. What does it say in verse 20? Who turn back to God. A redeemer will come. One man who's going to rescue everyone who will turn from their transgression. And the apostles take this theme and they run with it in the New Testament. They, like, they run with it. They're like, you know what? Everything that Isaiah was talking about, in fact, Jesus even says, Isaiah was talking about me. I am the Redeemer, right? He's the one who shows up in, in Nazareth and he opens the scroll and Isaiah 61 is about him. Jesus is saying, I am the Redeemer, and then to sort of add a little bit of fuel to the fire, look at verse 21. And as for me, declares, so this is what God says. And as for me, this is God speaking, this is my covenant with them. What is my covenant? The Redeemer. The covenant is a person. The covenant is a person. I'm saying that because the uh, language of the next part of the verse shifts from them to you. So who's God speaking to? My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth. I think the best explanation in its context for who God is speaking to is the Christ, is the Redeemer. So there are three people in verse 21. God, the people of God, I'm making my covenant with them, and the Redeemer, the one who is the covenant embodied, the promise of God embodied. And so Paul will even say in the New Testament, Jesus is the yes and amen of every promise of God, right? Who's this promised one in verse 21? My spirit is upon you. Same person in 61 of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. And my words that I've put in your mouth. So just imagine the Father saying to the Son, by the Spirit, that the triune God is at work in verse 21. I think that's what's happening. The Lord says, my Spirit is upon you. My words that I put in your mouth, my promises, my covenant redemption, it's all wrapped up in verse 21. We are, look, the promise God made is not just to you. This is the thing that will help you understand. You don't keep yourself once you get saved. You don't save yourself and you don't keep yourself. Guess who keeps you? God keeps you. The same one who promised. Like the promise is between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
God can save. God can keep. Man, this is just so rich. All right, I gotta say one last thing as we close. Let me, let me say something about the word redeemer. Christ our redeemer. Verse 20. So when you read this word redeemer, it's really a precise word. It doesn't occur a lot in the Old Testament. It's a precise word that comes out of Leviticus 25. And you remember in Leviticus 25, uh, so let's just say that you got into some really heavy financial debt and you couldn't get out of that financial debt. In fact, that financial debt uh, that came through, like in a modern context, through healthcare or uh, a cycle of retail indebtedness through your credit cards or whatever, whatever reason you got into really deep financial debt. In Leviticus chapter 25, the problem is financial indebtedness, and a person gets so far in debt that he can't get out, and so he becomes a slave to another person. And then along comes a kinsman redeemer an uncle or a brother, someone from your family who has the resources to get you out of debt so you don't have to live as a slave for the rest of your life or wait to the year of Jubilee, which might be years and years from now. A redeemer is the man who would have the, the resources to take on your debt and pay off all of it. So let's say you're in really deep debt and your uncle or brother says, I want to help you. He says, but I need you to share with me everything. And you're like, I, you don't want to know. How, you don't want to know the indebtedness. You don't want to see the paperwork. No, I, I want to see it. I, I want to help you. I can't help you if you don't show it to me. Why don't you just Give me the money and I'll pay it off. No, I need to see it. I need you to show me every single debt that you have against you right now. And finally, okay, here's the, here's the car debt, here's the healthcare debt, here's the house debt, here's the retail debt, here's the absolute unnecessary spending debt, I've gotten myself into such a mess, I don't know what to do. And by the way, financial pressure does this to people. People get into serious financial pressure and they can't get out. Now here's how the analogy goes. Jesus says, I wanna help you get out of your sin debt before God. And some of us are saying, yeah, but I, I can't show you everything. I'm kind of ashamed. I'm ashamed for you to see everything. I'm just too ashamed for you to see all of my mess and my problem that I could, look, look, look back at verse 15. The Lord saw it. God sees it already. So Jesus is saying to us this morning, if you will kind of roll out just, just roll it all out before God and say, I'm so ashamed of my indebtedness, my sin, my iniquity. I could never get myself out of this, but I'm gonna, I want to show it all to you because I need your help. Jesus is so much better than a wise financial planner. 
And yet, you'd have to show them everything to get out, right? Listen. The word redeemer is about a brother or an uncle who comes all the way in and who you trust and says, look, the, the, the Redeemer says, look, I'm here to help you. If you show me everything, I will buy you all the way out, completely out, and then I'm going to help you deal with this for the rest of your life. Now, who wouldn't want that? Who would not want the freedom that Christ, our Redeemer, brings to rescue us and set us free and put us back in right relationship with God? He is our Redeemer. Ruth and Boaz, beautiful story. That could be your story. Leviticus 25, beautiful story. That could be your story. Christ, our Redeemer, that could be your story. We want to pray for that this morning. Will you just stop for a moment with me if you have never come clean with your indebtedness to God I want to invite you to do that this morning if you've never come clean with your indebtedness to God just just start voicing that to him right now God I, I do feel the weight of my wrong choices I feel the weight of my deception. I feel the weight of my wronging of family and friends. And God, I feel like I'm drowning under my debt. How do I get out? Is there somebody who could buy me out? I want to trust Christ to buy me out, to pay my way out. So just right now, in the quietness of, of, of here, in this church, right now, in this moment, like just acknowledge to Christ as Redeemer, I, I need you. I've resisted you before, but I don't want to keep resisting you. I can't buy myself out of this. Would you please pay the debt that I owe to God. Pray something like that. And those, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, really even convicted this morning about our own hearts, God, as we sing in just a moment, please help us to voice the power of your restoration and your grace in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.